We often focus on acquisition in terms of how we buy things, but there's a lot wrong to the left of that. It is the week of October 12th, and welcome to episode 46 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. I'm Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with Chris Bros, former staff director of the Senate Armed Services Committee and author of The Kill Chain, Defending America in the Future of High-Tech Warfare. Prior to serving as staff director of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Chris served as a senior advisor to Senator John McCain, as a speechwriter for Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, and as a member of the State Department's policy planning staff. Chris currently serves as chief strategy officer for Andural Industries, a startup defense contractor. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jamil. Great to be with you. So, you know, I want to start right at the top. You know, you begin your book with a description of Senator John McCain asking you to uh, get a briefing for all 100 senators on the state of U.S. Uh, defense technology innovation, uh, where we stood and how we stood relative to our adversaries. Tell us about that moment uh, with Senator McCain and with those senators as, as uh, you arranged a briefing with them. What was going on there? Why is that moment so important? And why do you start your book with that story? Yeah, well, thanks. And thanks for having me on. It's awesome to be uh, to be back with you. Uh, it reminds me of all of our fun times that we had together, uh, high adventures in the Senate. Um, you know, I think that moment was significant because it was the culmination of a lot of work and a lot of thinking and a lot of oversight we'd been doing for for years. You know, we had been uh, increasingly focused on the erosion of America's military technological advantage, uh, concern that we were falling behind vis-a-vis great power competitors, uh, especially primarily China. And as we were sort of trying to sort of educate, inform, you know, kind of bring this issue before the Senate, one of the ideas that the senator had, Senator McCain had, was really to try to get everybody in a room and, and lay this out in a compelling way. So we, we arranged this briefing, um, as you said, for, for all 100 members. And it was um, you know, information that the, that the senator and I had consumed, and it was compelling. And we pulled this off, invited everybody, and ended up uh, roughly with about a dozen members showing up. And for those who were there, it was sort of cold glass of water. Um, because I think, you know, for, for most members of Congress, certainly for the American public at large, you know, these aren't issues that they're paying close attention to. And to the extent that that's happening, you know, I think there's a lot of people who just take for granted that, you know, we have military superiority. Uh, we've enjoyed it for you know, a generation now since the end of the Cold War. Um, it's been largely uncontested. And there's sort of a belief that we are laps ahead of our competition, especially when it comes to military technology. And, you know, our, our belief was just that 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 has been true. Um, but it's increasingly less true and the trend line is heading in a bad direction. So, you know, what that briefing was intended to do was really inform members of Congress about the state of this competition and ultimately how the United States measures up, you know, against not only China, but, uh, you know, our other our other competitors in that regard as well. But um, really, I think the focus for him was on China because that was the most significant uh, kind of pacing threat that we faced. Um, they have been working for, you know, 25, 30 years very methodically and uh, with a sense of great urgency to modernize and transform, you know, their military, not to be like, you know, the U.S. military in every fashion, but actually to build up, um, you know, a suite of capabilities that are specifically and explicitly designed to call into question all of the assumptions on which America has projected power and the kind of means and ways and means that we have projected power now for um, for 30 years, possibly longer. You know, the, the main takeaway from that briefing, when you really kind of look at the scale and scope and rapidity 
of this Chinese military modernization effort and how it is purpose built to, you know, to really undermine foundations of American power projection. You know, it's not to say that China is 10 feet tall and that the United States has nothing it can do about it. But I think the clear takeaway is, you know, China's about seven and a half feet tall and growing rapidly. It is, again, not what most of the American public and most members of Congress believe to be true. And for the handful of members that were there, it was a pretty striking dose of reality. Right. So, you know, here we are three years later after this briefing that you delivered uh, to this dozen members of Congress and your book, uh, The Kill Chain, Defending America and the Future of High Tech Warfare, was published just this past April. Are we better off these three years later uh, than we were or are we worse off? Has China gotten accelerated? What are we looking at at this point three years after that briefing of those dozen senators? Yeah, I, I would say we're we're modestly better off insofar as we are, we're more focused on the problem. Even in, you know, 2017, when we had that briefing, you know, the, the narrative was starting to turn, the sort of consensus was starting to develop that, you know, we really needed to prioritize great power competition, especially the competition with China. Um, I think that's only become, you know, kind of uh, you know, more conventional wisdom, for lack of a better term, over the past three years. Um, I think that, you know, there's more understanding that um, we need to approach the problem differently. You know, we can't keep throwing money at the same types of ways and means of warfare that we've invested in for a very long time. Um, but I would argue that this is largely occurring at the level of rhetoric, um, which is which is positive. I mean, right, the first step in solving a problem is admitting you have a problem. And I think we're in that sort of admitting we have a problem phase. Um but I don't think yet we're in the sort of, okay, so what do we do about it phase and that we have a very clear answer and a very clear path for how we're going to make the kinds of changes that people are now, you know, I think increasingly on both sides of the aisle uh, saying we need to make. I think that is now kind of the critical next step of this debate, which is we, we have acknowledged that uh, we have been focused on the wrong issues or that we have not been sufficiently focused on the right issues. Uh, we're now focused on those issues. We now accept that we are falling behind. We are not in the right position. Um, we've accepted that we need to do things differently. Now, how are we going to do that? And that's, you know, in my you know kind of retelling of this briefly in the book, you know, that's where a generation of defense reform has foundered. Um, it's not for lack of people saying we need to do it. Uh, it's for the inability or unwillingness to do it at the level of implementation and execution. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. You talk about this this thing that you call the kill chain that's in the title of your book. And I'd love you to explain to the listeners what the kill chain is uh, and, and how it's relevant to what you just talked about, this idea that you need to understand a problem, make a decision, uh, and then have an effect, right? Talk to us about the kill chain and, and, and how we might apply that type of kill chain thinking uh, to uh, this problem of defense reform and high-tech warfare uh, and the like. Yeah. So, you know, I, I didn't go into the book thinking that this was going to be kind of the organizing concept for it, uh, let alone the title. Um, but the reason I settled on it uh, was out of a belief that this really is the thing that doesn't change. Um, this is actually what militaries seek to do in competition or conflict. Um, this is actually the thing that, that needs to get accomplished. Um, and what it is, is, you know, I think a, a term that everybody in the United States military or people who work around the military are familiar with, and most people outside of the military have never heard of. And, and really, you know, there's varying def uh, definitions of the kill chain, some, you know, very, very tactical, multi-step, very operationally uh, focused. You know, for my purposes, writing for a more general audience, what I tried to do was was just kind of boil it down to its essence, which 
is a sequential process of understanding leading to decision-making, leading to action. Um, understanding in the sense of just gathering information, collecting information, understanding what's happening on a battlefield or a, a place where militaries are competing, understanding sort of where you are, where your competitor is uh, at all different levels. Uh, decision-making in the sense of human decision-making, actually taking this information and understanding um, and making decisions about what to do in order to compete effectively. And then action from the standpoint of, you know, literally directing or commanding and controlling effects, whether those are, you know, kinetic and violent effects or those are nonviolent and non-kinetic effects as they more often are. Um, but it's a process that has to play out sequentially, you know, that you, you can't try to make decisions in the advance of understanding. You get into really bad positions when you try to take actions without, you know, uh, an understanding of the problem and, uh, you know, sort of well-communicated decisions about what you want to do. Um, so this is something that, that does have a linear quality to it. Um, and it's something where every phase is indispensable, you know, that, that you can't do two out of three. Um, and that's where the process breaks down. Uh, literally what the United States military refers to as breaking the kill chain. Um, you know, that, that you have to do each of these uh, steps in, in, uh, in sequence. So for me, you know, at, at a time where the threat is changing significantly, where technology is changing significantly, you know, what I like about it is that this is actually the constant that we need to hold on to as far as the definition of the problem uh, that we need to be able to solve. And it, and it should put uh, all of these, you know, variables in higher relief as to um, at the level of capabilities or operational concepts or organization, you know, how we answer these questions ultimately has to be baselined against the core metric here, which is is it accelerating and improving our ability to understand, decide, and act um, to accelerate kill chains or scale kill chains? Um, and, and ultimately, you know, when we when we think about military power, you know, my, my kind of core criticism in the book is that we very too often go back to, you know, what, what we refer to as platforms, ships, aircraft, fighting vehicles, tanks, um, you know, things that are in essence just kind of, uh, you know, exquisite trucks, um, those are things that are easy to understand. They're easy to sort of program money in the budget for. Um, people build them. Um, you know, you can put your hands on them. They look good in parades. Um, but unfortunately, those are just tools. Um, and I think the real question we're trying to answer here amidst all of this change is, what are the concepts and capabilities and organizational structures that are going to accelerate our ability to close the kill chain uh, without having any preferential bias toward the things that we have been using uh, for a very long time. And I would argue explicitly to make it uh, easier for us to understand whether those things are still relevant or not. Um, because I think all too often we fall into the trap of believing that military modernization, um, you know, is an incremental process of improving things that we've had for a very long time, um, you know, generating better versions of old things. Um, and I don't think that's going to be the answer for us in the future. We need to think differently about how, you know, these new technologies, new ideas will allow us to do completely different things, build completely different capabilities. Um, but they have to be focused on that process of improving and accelerating human decision or understanding decision making and action. So, you know, it's really important uh, and really interesting that you talk about this idea of, you know, the way that we think about our military capabilities and, and the idea that we think about platforms, right? You talk about the revolution of military affairs in the book. 
Um, you talk about how, in a lot of ways, the way that we think about our defense systems is really uh, was intended to be not a bug, but a feature of the process. And it turns out uh, it's problematic. And it goes back to where this kill chain really begins, right? It be, it's the, the kill chain in some ways begins in Washington, D.C. with decisions about what we're going to buy, how we're going to acquire it, the like. And you fundamentally describe the acquisition process in DOD, the Department of Defense, as fundamentally broken. What is the problem with defense acquisition today? And how can we address that problem in order to address the threats of the future? Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, I, I sort of tee up in the book this kind of, you know, mirror image to the kill chain from the standpoint of what we're trying to do, you know, operationally, militarily. You know, when it comes to politically and bureaucratically, um, you know, the the sort of stepchild of the kill chain is this, you know, kind of um, programming process that we go through um, that, that sort of has its own um, you know, symmetry here so that, you know, understanding decision-making and action and the kill chain is mirrored by requirements, budgeting, and acquisition uh, in the sort of politics and bureaucracy of Washington, both in the Department of Defense and the Congress, and then all of the external stakeholders, defense industry, and other, uh, you know, external stakeholders who have a bearing on that. Um, and and it's, the, it's the process that is broken. You know, I think we often focus on acquisition in terms of how we buy things. Um, but there's a lot wrong to the left of that. You know, it comes first and foremost to how we define the requirements for what we are trying to do and what capabilities we think are are important, um, what we are prioritizing. And often those requirements are um, things that are defined in very bureaucratic processes on timelines that are wildly unrealistic, um, trying to predict what the world in 2030 is going to look like and what military systems we should be investing in today that will deliver uh, in 2030 or after. Um, which, you know, I, I, I sort of joke often that, you know, 10 years ago, if you'd asked me to use that type of a process to, you know, get my mobile device, you know, I would have the best flip phone in America right now, but I would not have an iPhone. Um, so the requirements process is, is, is broken in a lot of respects. Um, the budget process, you know, how we actually determine what we're going to spend money on, um, you know, it is is something that can cut either way. You know, it can it can actually enable us to buy the right things and Congress can, uh, you know, correct the faults and failures of the department in terms of the priorities that we need to be addressing as far as how we spend money. Um, but all too often, again, you know, we have a very platform centric mentality about the budget process where, you know, every year as the department is figuring out, you know, how to spend the money it wants to request and Congress is figuring out how to, um, you know, authorize and appropriate the money they're going to provide, you know, the, the debates fixate on, you know, what number of aircraft are we going to buy? What number of ships are we going to buy? You know, are we making progress to the 355 ship Navy or the 386 Squadron Air Force? But all of those critical enabling capabilities that accelerate the kill chain and improve the kill chain, you know, command and control systems, software, intelligence, space systems, um, these things often end up, uh, you know, getting uh, short shrift um, and we end up spending a lot of money on the wrong things and not enough money on the right things. And then and then that finally comes back to, you know, the end of this process with this acquisition, as you say, which is once we've decided what we want to buy and we've actually appropriated money for it, the process by which we go about buying military systems uh, is slow. It's archaic. Uh, it unfortunately ends up in, you know, creating uh, for the sake of certainty and stability, um, large programs of record, which 
um, essentially single vendors have access to and sort of lock up for years at a time, you know, long periods of performance where uh, there's not enough ability to actually compete those systems out to insert new technology to adapt and change with, you know, the times and new new technologies as they become available. So the whole process end to end is is quite problematic. And, and it's something that I try to, you know, unpack a bit in the book. So let's talk about, you know, some of these, some of these new technologies and how we might leverage them. You're uh, the chief strategy officer at Endural, which is a, which is a startup defense contractor. It's something, you know, we haven't really heard about startup defense contractors um, uh, ever pretty much, uh, at least not in a long time. Um, so let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about you know emerging technology. You know, one of the things you mentioned uh, is that stealth technology has really enabled us to maintain a huge technological advantage. You're concerned that 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 advantage is eroding, um, and there might be the potential for emerging te- technologies, machine learning, AI, and the like, uh, to help us get ahead of this. Is that real? And what does that look like? Uh, and what role do sort of uh, you know, the way that new space has started to evolve our, our thinking about space technology, how is new defense contracting and new defense contractors uh, like your company thinking about how to evolve that space? Yeah. So the, this whole project for me really actually began with that question. Um, you know, I was asked to write a paper for the Aspen Strategy Group, sort of exploring how these emerging technologies, like you mentioned, um, are really going to impact national defense. And, you know, I think in a lot of my frustration, this was three years ago, and it still is true today, is that, you know, a lot of the people who understand the technology aren't necessarily working in national defense and aren't really familiar with national defense problems. Um, And the people who are working in national defense and are familiar with those problems aren't necessarily always the ones who are leading the development of the kinds of emerging technologies that you mentioned. Um, So I think, you know, trying to really unpack and understand how these technologies are going to uh, make an impact and allow us to think differently uh, about military power uh, was kind of the impetus of this whole project. And, you know, again, the reason I I sort of settled on the kill chain is I think that's where you really begin to see and understand and sort of better able to contextualize the impact that these technologies are going to have. Um, So that when you think about machine learning, for example, there are many things that machine learning can't do. And, you know, I, you, you mentioned Anderol and as a, as a builder of artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities, we're uh, hyper aware of all of the things that these technologies cannot do today and should not do today. But there are things that they can do remarkably well um, in terms of eating through very large data sets and helping human beings uh, separate signal from noise and uh, identify um, objects of interest that they're looking for, um, support them in decision-making to offload a lot of the cognitive burden that unfortunately our military operators struggle with, you know, as they work very manually and slowly to connect kill chains today. Um, these are areas where, you know, a technology like machine learning, even as in, you know, it's, it's sort of infancy now, um, is going to really be able to, to add value and improve human understanding, decision-making and action. Um, I, I think more broadly, you know, what I, what I try to sort of think through is, you know, if you, if you start with the underlying assumptions about, uh, you know, about the, the military force that we have, you know, we've, we've largely built this force on the assumption that we have, uh, you know, that we will be able to uh, kind of evade detection. We will be able to hide successfully on the battlefield. Um, we will be able to use relatively small numbers of systems that are technologically exquisite and superior to dominate even uh, quantitatively superior adversaries. 
um, that we will be able to, you know, kind of operate across long distances, but still operate from a position of sanctuary, you know, whether those are forward military bases or in the space domain or the electromagnetic spectrum or cyber, um, you know, we will be able to, um, you know, really kind of have this military overmatch from, uh, you know, delivered by these technologies that we've relied on for a very long period of time, stealth, precision strike, um, that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I think where, where I look at the, the challenges that these technologies are going to present to us, I think, is that it really starts to call into question a lot of those underlying assumptions, you know, where you're going to have uh, the entire world becoming a sensor in terms of uh, the proliferation of sensors uh, across the environment, in space, the ability to exploit that information with machine learning and artificial intelligence, um, the ability to have larger numbers of more autonomous systems on the battlefield, um, hiding becomes harder, um, penetrating becomes harder, um, surviving becomes harder because once you're found, there's more likelihood that you'll be overwhelmed by large numbers of very precise weapons. You know, whether those are autonomous, uh, you know, uh, military systems or, um, you know, actual missiles or weapons or um, non-kinetic fires. Um, so a lot of these underlying assumptions, I think, become um, become very debatable about uh, the way we've built our force today and the kind of attributes that force in the future is going to need to have in the sense that um, I am not going to be able to rely upon very small numbers of large, expensive, exquisite, you know, heavily manned and hard to replace things um, because I'm going to lose a lot more of those things. Those things are going to have a lot harder time hiding they're going to have a lot harder time uh, surviving when they get um, inundated or overwhelmed with large quantities of military systems and weapons. Uh, so we really, I think, need to think about building that force differently. And the final thing I'll say is the, the benefit of thinking about this in terms of the kill chain is that what ultimately matters here is not the individual platform or the individual system or the individual weapon. Um, it is that network of systems that you can bring together, that you can operate at large scale, that you can replace uh, rapidly um, so that it is really more about the performance of the network as opposed to the requirements or attributes of the individual platform. Um, and I think that's the thing that we we're going to need to think about, you know, how we measure military power, how we speak about it, uh, because we're not set up to define requirements and um, budget money and acquire battle networks uh, as opposed to military platforms. You know, uh, I, I want to talk about this this uh, this reform that you've talked about, and in particular, the sort of emerging technologies and this capabilities that AI and the like bring to bear on the battlefield in terms of adversaries. Because as you point out, you know, we're not going to have fundamental reform until we convince the American people and our elected representatives uh, that this is something they need to care about, um, and that it, you know, and oftentimes that turns our adversaries. So, you know. We're gonna, and we should get to China here in just a second because obviously that is our that is the main line of effort that we need to think about. But for a second, let's talk about you know terrorism. Um, you know, as you mentioned in the book, you know uh, these actors aren't particularly sophisticated, right? Necessarily, uh, but we still have been unable to score really a decisive victory. We've taken out a lot of leadership. We made them a, made it a lot harder for them to succeed at an operational level, but we haven't fundamentally sort of wiped out uh, quote unquote the terrorists. Um, is there a way that autonomous systems uh, of the type that you all are building, uh, the type that DOD is thinking about? I mean, we've been talking about networked warfare, as you well know, for 20 years, right? Um, is there a way that when we talk about the sort of the, the, the warfare, when it's not one single large-scale adversary like China, which we will talk about 
immediately next. Uh, but we're talking about these distributed networks. Can autonomous uh, systems help us more in that realm? And if so, how? Yeah, so I think it's, um, I, I believe it can, and I believe it's going to have to, because I think, you know, a lot of the focus around, you know, sort of quote unquote defense innovation right now is really focused on China, Russia, kind of the great power competitors as uh, the, the reason we need to innovate. Um, but I would argue the, you know, there's an there's a equally compelling reason to innovate against, you know, these counterterrorism problems uh, that we've really been focused on for the past 20 years, because they're going to receive a smaller share of the budget. They should receive, um, you know, kind of a lower tier prioritization as far as um, how they stack up against, you know, where we're going to be focused at the level of strategy and resource uh, allocation vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. But that doesn't mean that we are going to be able to kind of wash our hands of these problems or put them in our rearview mirror and pretend that they don't exist, um, because that's just a recipe for allowing them to metastasize um, and, and come back to haunt us in a pretty nasty way. And we've kind of run the social science experiment to some extent over the past decade. Um, I think the innovation that I would look at there is how these kinds of networked systems will allow us to... Um, to conduct these kinds of, you know, very targeted operations um, at lower cost and, and lower cost to resources and lower cost to manpower. You know, so when you talk about uh, kind of the innovation of, um, you know, predator aircraft or Reaper aircraft, remotely piloted aircraft, um, you know, we refer to them as unmanned systems, but the reality is that they're not, they're not, they're not inexpensive. Um, and when you think about the actual sort of manning tail that comes with that, every function that that system is performing is largely being formed remotely by human beings, whether it's, you know, piloting the aircraft, steering its sensors, you know, processing and exploiting and disseminating the data coming off of those systems. Um, it's an incredibly manpower intensive event. So the, the benefit of autonomous systems, I think, is the ability to replicate or even exceed the capabilities that we have devoted to this fight um, and do it at lower cost to money and lower cost to manpower, um, which is something I think we're going to have to do because we're going to have, we should have uh, less money and less manpower to devote this problem as we subordinate it to, you know, kind of uh, a focus on great power competition. Um, so I think that's something that we, you know, that these technologies will allow us to, uh, to solve these problems differently and better. But ultimately, I mean, going back to the to the thrust of your question, the reason I think we have not been as successful as we've needed to be um, is really more at the level of policy and strategy, um, not so much at the level of kind of tactics and military operations. Um, we've been in, you know, remarkable at the tactical level in terms of, you know, as you know, taking these types of, um, you know, kind of breaking these networks apart, taking uh, terrorists off the battlefield. It's in the failure to link that to realistic policy and strategic outcomes uh, where I think we've, we've really foundered. Um, and that's not a technology problem. That is not a, frankly, that's not even really a military problem. That is a, what are we ultimately trying to do here problem? And uh, that is, I think, something that we're also going to need to think through and, and redefine a bit, you know, as we begin to look at this in a new context moving forward where, it's not to say that these challenges aren't important, but they are not going to receive the level of prioritization and resources and defense manpower that they've received for the past 20 years. So let's talk about that. You know, we've seen the administration, uh, the Trump administration over the last uh, three years, and in particular in the last year, uh, get very aggressive about China, right? We're obviously in a trade war with China. 
Uh, but we're also uh, pushing back in a lot of ways. We've seen the Huawei and ZTE executive orders. Uh, we've seen WeChat and TikTok. We've seen um, uh, all number of efforts uh, to sort of push back on, on Chinese uh, efforts, whether it's, uh, whether it's IP theft um, or, or strategic innovation um, or, or collection of data in the United States. Um, wh- how should we think about what is it we are trying to do with China? Do we see China as, a, as the next, as you've said, great power competitor um, what do we? Sh- how worried should we be about about China? And, and tactically speaking, should we be concerned about China looking at Taiwan um, and saying, "Look, is Donald Trump really going to come intervene in Taiwan if we go across the straits? Is Joe Biden really going to come intervene in Taiwan if we go across straits? And if so, if not, how should the American people think about that potential problem and what impact might it have on our technological superiority, given our dependence on?" countries like Taiwan, Japan, South Korea for semiconductors? Yeah, so it, look, there's, there's a lot there and it's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I think when, where I give the administration credit is is really focusing, as you say, on moving to a more competitive uh, posture with China um, and recognizing that there has to be reciprocity in this relationship. Um, we have to use the leverage that we do have um, to achieve interests and outcomes that benefit the American people. Um, and that's something that I think they've, they've sought to rebalance. Um, you know, I think my concern is that uh, a lot of the sort of specific actions that you mentioned that we talk about, you know, sort of have a feeling of, you know, kind of kicking each other under the table. Um, and it's not clear to me where we're trying to go and what end state we're trying to create. Um, and I think that's, you know, frankly, the same uh, concern that I've had about, you know, how we've thought about counterterrorism for the past, you know, 10, 20 years, which is ultimately, what are we trying to achieve? Um, so we can, we, we very quickly get focused on, you know, the tactical details, the technical details, the execution. Um, but I think we, we need to be, you know, focused on what end state we are trying to achieve here. And, you know, I think the, the put on it that I would make is, you know, we, we focus on the great power competition angle, um, but I think the reality of China is that they are unlike any competitor we faced in a long time in that um, they're more than a great power. Um, the Soviet Union was a great power, but at the peak uh, of Soviet power, they were about 40% of US GDP, largely cut off from the international trading system um, and didn't really have a vibrant and robust domestic base of technological innovation. Um, China has all of those things, and they're already around uh, very quickly kind of approaching parity with respect to U.S. GDP. This is a pure competitor. Um, this is unlike anything we have faced since, you know, I think you have to go back to about the 1880s um, to find a competitor or a group of competitors um, that is equal to U.S. GDP. Um, and I think the reality of that is something that we've also not contended with for a very long time, you know, at a strategic level in the United States, which is, you know, this is a competitor that is going to be able to impose its will on us, that's going to be able to limit our ambitions, um, including with its military power or its threat of military power, so that a lot of the things that we've said we want to do for a very long time, uh, the goals we've defined, um, may turn out to be unrealistic and unachievable. Um, and I think what the reality is about the history of great power competition is that Great powers have the ability to check one another's ambitions and limit what they are willing and able to achieve. And it focuses you know, each side on really more clearly defining what its core interests are. Um, what are the things that it's truly prepared to fight over? Um, and then how does it ensure that 
the competition is kept, you know, competitive, but, um, you know, not drifting into a state of conflict. Um, so, you know, I think the, the concerning thing from a military standpoint, um, as I write in the book, is the erosion of military deterrence, um, you know, conventional military deterrence. And I think that's ultimately what we've been seeing play out here now for a decade or two. Um, that dominance that American uh, military dominance that America has enjoyed for a long time has begun eroding. Um, and I would argue that, you know, U.S. military primacy is something that, you know, is going away if it hasn't already and it's not coming back. And that's something that we need to, in my opinion, you know, as a strategic community, we need to recognize and accept um, rather than try to uh, say that if we if we do something differently, you know, somehow we're going to be able to kind of, you know, revert back to the world as it was in 1997. Um, and I think, you know, that 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 it becomes incumbent upon us to really more clearly define what are the things that we are trying to get out of this relationship? What are the things we are trying to prevent China from doing or becoming? Um, and that's where I think, you know, a much more realistic definition of our objectives from a military standpoint is not somehow, you know, kind of uh, reacquiring U.S. global military primacy. Um, it's denying it to China um, and denying China the kind of military dominance in its region that it's clearly seeking. Um, and I do believe that is actually within our power, even as the balance changes, as budgets change, as it becomes, China becomes more powerful. And, you know, the question of Taiwan that you mentioned becomes very central to that with respect to, you know, what do we need the Taiwanese investing in to make them more defensible? Um, what are the kinds of capabilities that they are going to need to develop and acquire um, and amass at scale in large quantities? Um to ensure that they are contributing to a favorable balance of power um, and essentially creating uh, at a psychological level uh, a degree of deterrence um, in the in the mind of, you know, Chinese Communist Party decision makers that, you know, this is not the day. Every day that they wake up is not the day that they decide that they want to pick that fight, um, that they're going to sort of postpone it into the future. And, you know, we'll see what the future holds. Um, that, I think, is the concern that I have here is, you know, as you watch an erosion of military deterrence, um, you know, does that embolden decision makers in Beijing uh, to do something that would be incredibly destabilizing and, and ultimately detrimental to uh, to our allies and to us? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a very sobering and, and, and troubling view of the world, right? If we're not able to, to reobtain our military advantage, and what we're really trying to do is just stave off China's military advantage, or at least even even particular areas. I mean, are we looking at a world in which the U.S. is is never able to become uh, the global hegemon it once was? Um, I personally think that, you know, the, the 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 sort of hegemony that we once had, the primacy that we that we once had is something that is eroding and is not coming back. Um, now, look, to be clear, China could fall flat on its face tomorrow. Um, its whole system could collapse, its economy collapse, you know, you know, these things happen. Um, I also don't think that it's something that, you know, at a national level, the United States can make policy around. Um, you know, we, we have to assume that there's going to be staying power here, that the, you know, continued uh, accumulation of power in all of its forms uh, in the Chinese Communist Party is something that is going to persist. And if that happens, um, it is something that I think inevitably... Um, changes the relative balance of power in the world. 
Um, and that's something that I think we have to accept as a, a reality of the world that we live in now and certainly the world that we're moving into. But I also don't think that that means that all hope is lost. Um, I think that the period of time from the end of the Cold War up until probably recently, maybe the financial crisis was incredibly aberrational um, as far as the degree of dominance that America enjoyed. Um, you know, the vast majority of history is not characterized by that degree of unipolarity and dominance. Um, it's characterized by, you know, geopolitical rivalry and competition among powers that, you know, may not be equal, but, but are certainly willing and able to check and balance one another to a degree that we didn't see in the 1990s and 2000s and, you know, the years thereafter. So I think to a certain extent, we're just moving back into the world as it's always been. Um, and we need to recognize that, that world is a heck of a lot more competitive and the stakes are a heck of a lot higher for us than um, the, the experience we've had of the past 20 to 30 years. Um, and, and, and that to me is the core concern here is that we've been spoiled by our own dominance to a degree that we have come to assume or take for granted things that we're going to have to fight for in the future, not literally fight for, but possibly literally fight for, um, because we had to fight for them in the past. And that's something that you know we just need to accept that this is going to be an incredibly high stakes competition and we need to get our edge back. Um, and that's the thing that I think we've lost to, you know, again, because we've um, largely been spoiled by not having to compete for it. Um, and that's something that we're going to have to change quickly at a, at a psychological level. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that for a second. And then I want to, I want to ask you about sort of what you would do if you, if you ran the world. Uh, but, uh, but to start out, like, you know, one of the things you and I are both in startups, right? And one of the things that, that sort of a feature of startups is there's a lot of fail fast, fail often, right? And eventually find that, that thing that's going to succeed. Uh, the U.S. military, the U.S. government, frankly, is really bad at that, right? We punish failure all the time, uh, instead of rewarding and saying, yeah, fail often, get it right and, and, and execute. How do we, um, how do we change that mentality? Can we, is it, is it even realistic? to expect to change that mentality, which has been ingrained for now decades? Um, yes, it's possible. It's incredibly hard, but it's possible. And I think, you know, kind of the sine qua non is what we were just talking about, which is the first thing that we have to accept in order to put all of this in the right context is that we are in an incredibly high stakes competition right now with a great power, a pure competitor, um, that does not share many of our interests and does not share our values and is laser focused on displacing us, um, you know, as the world's dominant power and using emerging technology as a way to leapfrog us. Um, that has to focus our mind so that we understand that as hard as change may be, all of the change that, you know, that we're talking about here, as hard as that may be technologically, politically, bureaucratically, um, the, the stakes are high enough that we have to bear that pain. We have to make those sacrifices um, because the pain that we're going to have to accept if we don't change is worse, that there is something worse than change. And that looks like falling behind or losing the competition that we are, that we are now in. Um, so, you know, if we come at it with that right mindset, I think it begins to put those types of things that you mentioned in the right context, which is, Sure, it's okay to fail because that's how we learn, that's how we improve, and that's absolutely something we must do. Um, but again, you know, we've we've got to have a system that enables that, that incentivizes it, and rewards it. Um, so you, you know, you mentioned the approach that you know, kind of startup companies take of moving fast, failing fast, learning, bounding problems, and then 
you know, moving on iteratively. Um, that is something that we have to have a system that creates the incentives for that to, to take place. And then I would argue the, the critical most important thing that has to come after that, uh, which we have abjectly failed to do for the past generation, uh, is we have to scale these things. You know, where there is success, where a differentiating capability or company or approach or technology shows itself to be value added, uh, we have to move it to scale. We have to field it at scale. We have to move it across the proverbial valley of death, um, you know, where, where so many kind of encouraging prototypes and interesting science projects have gone to die for the past 20 to 30 years. We have got to move these things at scale. And that's not going to be everything. Um, and that's where, you know, we have to have a system that is willing and able to pick winners and losers, you know, not based on political criteria, based on performance so that we can clearly see what works and what doesn't, what's better and what's not. And I don't care who makes it. You know, I don't care whether it's a household name defense company or a startup nobody has ever heard of before. We have to be able to see what works better than other things, whether it's an idea or a capability, and we have to scale it quick. Um, and that's something that we, that, we, that we truly have failed to do. And I think you know, at the level of incentives, if we start to do that better, it changes all of the downstream incentives for technology developers, new companies, investors, because now they're starting to see that good ideas, good companies, good technology, good capabilities um, are succeeding at scale, that there's actual returns to be made uh, in doing this defense innovation work. Um, but if it stays at the level of, you know, pilot projects and prototypes and it never moves beyond, you know, single couple million dollars here or there, um, you know, it's never going to change at the level of incentives um, that we're going to need to have in order to really mobilize what is great about this country uh, in terms of its, you know, entrepreneurialism, its technological innovation, you know, the, the human capital that we have here uh, to really approach these problems differently. Um, those people are not going to come solve these problems if we don't make it more worth their while to do so. Right. No, I think that's exactly right. So, Chris, you know, if you were back in your office on Capitol Hill or, you know, maybe in a, in a future administration, an office in the White House, if you could make immediate decisions tomorrow and really get them effectuated through the entire policy process, what would be the one or two big decisions you'd make now to effectuate the kind of change that you've described in your book, uh, uh, you know, going forward? Yeah. So, I mean, aside from sort of waving the magic wand and, you know, kind of changing the sense of urgency that we have to get after this, which, you know, I, I again, I do think is changing. Um, and I and I credit, you know, I think sort of leaders on both sides for for really having a changed mindset, the kinds of things that we're seeing come out of, uh, you know, the chief of staff of the Air Force, the commandant of the Marine Corps, the things that they're writing and saying, um, I think truly do reveal that these are people moving with a sense of urgency. Um, I would argue, you know, kind of back to where we started this conversation at the level of implementation and execution. You know, one thing that I would love to see us do differently is um, back to that process of requirements, budgets and acquisition, you know, narrowly more from a defense standpoint. I would like to see us actually put processes in place that allow us to um, open up and make more transparent and more competitive uh, the ways by which we go defining requirements, budgeting. Um, defining priorities, and then ultimately buying uh, defense capabilities. There, there are certain kinds of things like, you know, submarines and aircraft carriers and bombers that are going to be bought on long timelines. They're capital intensive. 
uh, you're not going to have many companies that are capable and willing to to build those types of systems. But I would argue that those are going to be, I think, you know, more aberrational um, and hopefully, um, you know, more the extreme than the norm. Um, and I think the real value of the kinds of, you know, autonomous systems, you know, kind of AI enabled systems, command and control, kind of lower cost uh, space capabilities. These are systems that can be bought more regularly um, where they're changing so often that you can uh, actually put in place annual processes to compete uh, like systems against like systems to determine what is truly best in breed based on performance, not based on, you know, PowerPoint presentations and white papers and, you know, the bureaucratic dark arts, um, but actually what works better than other things. And let's buy those new things more regularly. Let's not have programs of record that, you know, perform over many, many years where once you've got it, it's like tenure at a university and you never can lose it. Um, we've got to get into a cycle where every year we have, you know, kind of on ramps for new entrants, uh, new competitors, new companies, new technologies uh, to show up and try to outcompete what is currently best in breed. You know, who are the, you know, the, the performers or program of record holders um, to, to inject more competition into the acquisition, the requirements definition, budgeting and acquisition for military capability. Um, and I think that's the kind of thing that begins to create incentives for more people to want to do this work. Um, to be able to see that if I put my own investment into developing a capability, I have an opportunity to go compete for a large share of programmatic dollars based on my ability to outperform potentially, you know, an entrenched incumbent or a very large uh, competitor. Um, we have to make our system more susceptible to disruption. And that's something that I think we failed to do. We've made ourselves the opposite. You know, we've become impervious to disruption. Um, so we've got to find ways and it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be everywhere. It's not going to be exactly like the commercial world, uh, but we've got to create avenues and areas where we can truly create incentives for disruption and disruption at scale. And as you said earlier, um, a, a rapidity with which, you know, we move through this process and scale quickly based on, you know, clearly performing identified winners. Um, that's, I think, something that, you know, is doable right now. It is, a, it, is, it is something that we would have to do at the level of process. So I'm not here to say that like this particular widget or that particular company has got all the answers, it's all figured out. Um, I, I would argue it's actually more at the level of process that we need to get this right because we are, we are going to get these things wrong. We're not gonna be able to predict the future. We're not gonna know what technology, idea, capability, company, et cetera, is gonna have the answer that we're going to need um, or the requirement that we're gonna have to define. That's something that we're going to have to work out more iteratively. And, and we can put processes in place that allow us to do that. I don't believe it's rocket science. I don't believe it's politically impossible. Um, I think this is something that we can get after right now, and I, I hope we do so. Awesome. Chris, thanks so much for being with us this week. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, Chris Rose, uh, author of the book, The Kill Chain, Defending America and the Future of High-Tech Warfare, uh, available at your local bookstores or online, Amazon.com, Barnes & Nobles, you name it. Uh, Chris, thanks a lot for being here. Really appreciate it. Uh, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Jamil. Great to be with you. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing. 
Zach Varda for research assistance, and Grant Haver for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.